Hey, what's going on? Jason Bay here. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting. Thanks for checking out the podcast. This is for sales reps and sales teams who love landing big meetings with their prospects, but hate sending hundreds of cold emails that never get responded to or get very little responses. So if that's ever happened to you before, you're definitely in the right place. Today, I'm super excited for our conversation with Matt Wallach. He's the founder of a company called Excellus, and we're going to be talking about discovery. So if you're uh, in tech and you're an SDR, BDR, uh, you might be doing your own qualification, maybe a little bit of your own discovery. If you're an AE, you're definitely doing some discovery with your demos, hopefully. And if you're selling professional services like insurance or any other full cycle uh, sales role, discovery is a huge part of the sales process. And I've been starting talking about this more because I think this is a really underlooked part of the sale because doing good discovery, you know, that first 20, 30 minutes that you spend with a prospect can really dictate whether or not you close that deal. I think that two thirds, maybe 80% of the sales process is doing really great discovery. And when you know what you want to figure out about the prospect, it helps you actually prospect a lot smarter too. So today I'm talking to Matt Wallach and we're going to be talking about his perfect deal process. And he's got a cool little structure here that we're going to run through and deal is an acronym. So the D is for discovery, E is for education, A is for associate, and L is for lead. He's going to run through that process, but specifically today, what we're going to be focusing on is the discovery process. So again, think about that first interaction you have with the prospect and how do you do more than just ask them, a, you know, pepper them with qualification questions and actually find true problems and pain to get them excited to do that demo or that next step with you if you're selling services. So appreciate you checking out the podcast. Before we get to the interview, if you're a rep and you're looking for a little bit more uh, help and something a little bit more than some of the free stuff that we're offering, we do have prospecting boot camps. So make sure to check out blissfulprospecting.com. Uh, it's pretty cool. You get access to uh, a course, you get access to live coaching and feedback from me. So if you want me to take a look at your emails, listen to recordings of your calls, take a look at your talk track, all of that stuff's good. And if you're a sales leader, uh, we do work with sales teams too. So if you're looking to get your team more confident on the phone, landing more meetings through their cold emails, cold calls, LinkedIn, better at objection handling, that sort of thing, everything to land more meetings with your ideal clients, uh, definitely make sure to reach out, blissfulprospecting.com. Everything should be there. Let's get to the episode today. So I like to ask guests when they come on for the first time, I'm curious, Matt, what was your like favorite childhood breakfast? What'd you eat when you were a kid? Ooh, favorite childhood breakfast? Probably Pop-Tarts. I mean, okay. I've always been a cereal guy. And even now, if you go into my pantry, I literally have at least 15 to 20 boxes of cereal, <laughs> all different kinds, the healthy stuff, the average stuff, the yeah. sugar stuff, love it all. So I've always been a cereal guy, but Pop-Tarts when I was a kid, oh man, yeah. so easy. Just pop them in the toaster. Boom, start crushing, especially like the iced ones where they, they got like the blueberry or strawberry icing on top. Like that was gold. Yeah. Love that stuff. Okay. I was a Pop-Tart guy myself too, dude. You know, cherry Pop-Tarts in particular oh. were my uh, my favorite. Oh, cherry's good. Cherry's good. Great call. And we could talk all hour about breakfast. That's my favorite meal. So you definitely struck a chord <laughs> there, Jason. I love it, man. 
So how did you get into sales? I was looking at your LinkedIn. I mean, you have a lot of different kinds of experience. You've obviously spent a lot of time in the software land, but what was your first sales job? So actually, I was in a real estate management company managing homeowner associations and condominium associations. Mm -hmm. And I was the third employee, essentially a startup. And that's where I really found I love the startup life. I really do love startups. That's kind of where I got the bug. And so I was kind of customer service, helping out our customers. And then eventually the founder realized we need to grow faster. And so he said, hey, why don't you take this sales call and see if you can go out and convince them? I did. And I felt the rush of being in sales, uh, preparing yeah. for it, delivering the message, getting the deal closed, all of it. And it was amazing. And I was hooked. And that's why I said, this is what I want to do. And so I started aligning more towards that within the, the business eventually built and ran the sales team, set up the entire structure. We actually went out and franchised that business. And so oh, wow. I got that whole side of selling with in terms of franchising and realized this is the life for me. Uh, from that point forward, I was all in. In fact, my next business after that was my first SaaS startup. We were a team of three. I was responsible for all the marketing and sales. And we built that company over 10 or so years to be quite a big opportunity and sold it for quite a lot of money. Realized this is something I absolutely love, taking startup software, finding a way to go to market really quickly, making a big impact, mm -hmm. and closing a lot of deals very quickly, seeing that exponential growth. I love it. I love it. And so that's where I got in. So how did you learn about the structural part of selling? And the reason I ask is that a lot of people... I mean, I read Little Red Book of Selling. That was by Jeffrey Gibbons. That was the first sales book I read when I was 18 years old about to you know, start a job where I went door to door selling house painting service. But it, there wasn't a lot about the process in there. And they fortunately had pretty good training. And ask because you're a really process oriented you know, guy, like this, especially the way you teach it now. And we'll get to it here in, in a minute. But how did you learn kind of about structurally how to go about selling it, what, what the process was and how to create that and scale it and all that stuff? How did you figure that part out? Well, when I first got into it, I was a complete novice. I had no clue how to sell. I thought salespeople were just, you go out and talk really well and be smooth and schmoozy and you win deals. Yeah. I didn't realize how wrong I was, but I didn't really know what I was doing early. And I kind of bumbled my way through those first few years, trying to figure it out, hitting a lot of challenges, figure out myself how to get over those challenges. I wish I was better about reaching out to people who were doing well and asking them and learning from them. I mm -hmm. absolutely wish I could go back and do that, but I didn't. I kind of had to try and figure it out myself. I eventually realized, hey, why don't I read some books? Why don't I? So that's where I kind of get in, got into all the books and there's some great sales books out there. I have actually a page on my, on my website about all the best sales books I recommend, but started reading books, articles, blogs, videos, started to do everything I can to learn from others how I can get better at what I'm doing. Within the SaaS world, our first product I mentioned, we struggled initially trying to get it sold, uh, but I didn't want to stand pat. And so I did go out and read the books, look at the blogs, watch the videos and started to pull some stuff that started to help. But I realized this is not what's really going to move the needle for us. We were growing, but not as much as you need to grow within the software world. You need to grow at big rates if you're going to keep pace in software because you have somebody that might come up behind you, take you over. Yep. And so what I realized was it's different in SaaS. And you know that, Jason. And I said, hey, I need to put together a process. And that's where I kind of realized I need to be much more process oriented, something repeatable, something scalable so that I can do it. But then 
my team that I bring on, they can come in, they can take over, they can do the same thing so that we can make a huge impact and blow this thing big. Yeah, if you remember, could you take us back to some of those kind of pivotal, what were some of the pivotal things that you learned early on in your career that are really important to the processes and things that you teach now to founders and sales teams? Sure, I mean, obviously, I learned early discovery is huge. You have to do a quality needs analysis. You have to qualify well. Part of that is I brought in customers that weren't good for us. You know, I realized after the fact, after they came in, they had a bad experience. They took up all the time of our support people. It was a really ugly thing on both sides. They didn't like it. We didn't like it. And I realized, hey, we need to be better about getting people on our, our, our system who are better fits for us, who are actually going to enjoy the product. We're going to get great value. We're going to shout to the rooftops about how amazing it is. That would work much better than getting somebody who gets upset all the time about it. So I realized qualification is huge. That, that whole process of understanding how to qualify definitely was iterative. I didn't say, hey, let's do this. And boom, I've got an amazing process. I had to try and figure it out. And let's try this. Nope, that's not good. Let's do this. So there's a lot of trial and error in there before I finally landed on this is the process that is the right way to qualify within the software world. But at least I learned you've got to qualify. You've got to get the right customers on board. And that's how you can grow a successful company. How big of a problem do you see that in the work that you do now where people are like they're selling churn? You know, I've heard people refer to it as where it's like there's so much pressure on the sales team to get the meeting, to close the deal, that they're just selling people that they're getting some cash flow, I guess, out of it. But it ends up costing them a lot of time, headache and money in the future. And they don't get any recurring revenue out of it either. Like, how is this a big problem in the work that you do? It's a huge problem. Yes, absolutely. They do get initial cash flow and that feels good. However, when they say that, that tells me that they don't have a good grasp on their metrics. Mm -hmm. Because if you actually looked at your CAC payback period, that's your customer acquisition cost and how long it takes you to earn back that cost that you spent to get the customer with the amount of money that they're paying you every month or every year. By the way, your CAC payback period should be less than 12 months if you want to have a stable growing software company, hopefully six to nine months, somewhere in there. Meaning if you're going to spend, let's say thousand dollars to acquire a customer, which most people don't realize how expensive it is. They don't have a, a good grasp on how much each customer costs them based on all their sales and marketing spend and the amount of customers they got from it. But if you're going to spend a thousand dollars and they're paying you $200 a month, they've got to stay with you five months just to get to that thousand dollars. So that means if they leave after two months, you lost money on them. Yeah. And so if you don't qualify, if you don't really understand, is this going to be a really good prospect or a really good customer for us, then you could have an opportunity where you lose money. Five months, by the way, is actually a really good CAC payback period. Most companies are much longer than that. So you need to make sure they stay with you for a long time, meaning they've got to be a good customer. This is something that changed huge with SaaS. Right back in the old days, like you went door to door selling painting. If you sold that painting, great. They pay the house. If it goes bad in six months, doesn't care. Doesn't matter. You guys are gone. You're out of there. You don't have to make it amazing. Now, you're not going to get another painting job in five to 10 years, but you may not care. Whereas in SaaS, every month they can decide do we want to re up? Do we want to re up? Do we want to continue with this thing? Is this something we want to do again? And if you haven't gotten the right people on board, 
they're out of there. Your term's going to be terrible. Your CAC payback's going to be terrible. Your lifetime value to CAC is going to be horrible. All of your metrics will be upside down and you're not going to have that awesome growing company. Yeah. So it sounds like it's pretty prevalent. <laughs> it, it is. Sorry. I never even asked you a question. The answer is yes. So I actually do sales process audits. So companies hire me to go through their sales process and actually kind of mystery shop them, which <laughs> is pretty fun. I actually mimic a real prospect and the, the reps don't know, but they give me their real sales pitch. And most of them are very, very poor. In fact, I have a process, which we can talk about later. And through that process, it outlines 40 different things that you must do in a software demo if you want to close deals at scale. Most of these experienced sales reps, even experienced software sales reps, are only doing about 16 or 17 out of 40. And in discovery alone, they're only doing about three or four out of the 10 things you must do in discovery. And so they're completely missing most of what should happen within a discovery call. It's a very bad issue because discovery is critical. It's the foundation. You've got to get off on the right foot. And a lot of people are not doing it. I'm curious about those sales process audits. What are some of the big pieces that you see that uh, companies are missing from their sales process? What are they doing wrong? Well, they're not engaging very well. So once the lead is submitted, you've got to jump on it right away. You know this, Jason. So you've got to have the right attitude to say, hey, leads in, they're hot right now. Let's get on it. Like within five or 10 minutes, not like, oh, we'll get to it today sometime. Immediately. The quicker you can get to it, the better chance you have of booking that meeting. So jump on it right away. That's one of the things. Once you have the meeting, discover, 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 discover. I can't emphasize it enough. So many times when I go through these audits or when I'm talking with people or when I'm a lot of my clients, I work with a lot of software founders, they send me their recorded demos. And what I see a lot is that oftentimes they're only looking for the fit. They're only trying to figure out, is this somebody we want to work with? Which great, that is one reason you should do discovery. But there's actually several other reasons to do discovery. But one reason is, are they a fit? And so what happens is after you ask maybe one question, maybe two questions, and you get the answer you're looking for of, yes, we're having a problem with this. Most people stop discovery and say, okay, great, we can solve that. The problem is that's not what needs to happen. You need to do so much more. Discovery is also helpful because you can demonstrate expertise. If you're asking right questions, if you're diving into questions, if you're mirroring off of what they're saying, they will realize you're an expert at this before you even start talking about anything else. You can show you're an expert just through discovery. You also want to get them to trust you. So if you can do those things, mirror them, if you can provide some feedback, if you can make sure that you're getting them really emotional, they'll realize, hey, this is somebody I can trust, I can level with, I can share and open up with. And really what you want to do most of all in discovery, you want to get them emotional. You've got to get them really emotional about their problem. If they're not emotional, they're not going to take action to solve the problem. So one of the things that absolutely gets missed by most salespeople in software is they are not getting enough emotion in the discovery process. It's a really, really important thing. Most people don't even know that they have to do it and they skip all the necessary steps once they hear, oh yeah, they're a fit. Bye. Terrible. Okay. I'm excited to get into this, man. Let's get into the, if you want to give kind of just a 10,000 foot view of your deal framework. And then we're going to focus a lot on the discovery piece just to give people some context. Perfect. So we have a process called the perfect deal process, D-E-A-L. 
That's an acronym. And the perfect deal process is what I developed when I said, hey, we've got to figure out a way to make this scalable, repeatable. And so I came up with these 40 different facets of a software demo that must happen correctly. 10 in discovery, 10 in each of the others. The deal, D-E-A-L, it stands for D-discovery. You have to do an outstanding discovery, just like we said, and just like we're going to talk about, and it sets up the entire rest of the conversation. Once you've done that, you have to educate. That's the E. That's where you're able to get them more of an understanding of what's happening within the industry or within the market that's causing them to need to move to your product. You also want to educate them about several other things that are really important, including what about you yourself? Most people forget that. Maybe about your company. Educate's critical that a lot of people forget. Now that you've discovered, now that you've educated, that A is for associate. You need to associate your product to their challenges. So if you've discovered correctly and you've learned about what's going on, you've learned about their needs and their worries and their goals, you now can take your product and boom, fit it to exactly what they need. You can associate your product, your solution to their situation. And that's where magic happens. A lot of time people just run through their script and they just go right through their program explaining everything. People will be bored. Show them what's matter, what matters to them, what's pertinent to them, and you're going to find a lot more people excited about your product and closing deals. So we discover, we educate, we associate. And the last one is L, the lead. You have to take the lead. As the sales rep, you're the one in control of the call. You need to be the one to make sure you're leading the conversation. This goes all the way from the prospecting phase through the demo phase, all the way through closing the deal. If you can take charge, take the lead, you're going to close a lot more deals than just sitting back and saying, so what do you want to do? They don't know what to do. They've never been through your sales process. Even if they think they know what to do, they don't know the best way to get in and learn your system and then to understand how to get set up and get started. You know all of that because you've seen it happen a lot of times. So take the lead, take charge, and you're going to do a lot better on closing deals. That's the perfect deal process. It works really well. Once people implement this, we've seen some ridiculous results. In fact, one of my clients, Greg, he actually went from a 2.9% close rate to an over 30% close rate in three months, just because he followed this process to a T and he absolutely killed it. In fact, we're going to talk about discovery. He said that he got his clients so emotional after discovery that they were 80% closed before they even saw the product. So can you imagine how cool that is that you can work people up and get them so incredibly ready that you haven't even shown the product and they already want to buy. Yeah, no, that's what it's all about, man. One question around this is, do you see any differences in this process in terms of like deal size or sales cycle? Does it apply for selling something that's a thousand bucks a month versus 10,000 bucks a month, you know, kind of thing? Does the process differ at all? It does. I will say at the very, very low end, like a $9 a month product, it's probably not a good idea to do this. It's more things than you might need to sell something at such a low product that people don't need a lot of motivation to purchase. But once you get to the $50, $75, $100 a month and more, and that's total deal size. So if you have a $5 per user, but everybody's 20 or 30 users, that's fine. So your total deal size, 50, 75, 100 bucks or more, this'll work. That does match for, like you said, the thousand per month, 10,000 per month, doesn't matter. I have a guy who sells $500,000 deals. This works beautifully for him. So yes, it works all sorts of places. So for the discovery piece then, 
Can you talk about how the process might differ, like in instances where you see an SDR or BDR do their own discovery? And what you recommend uh, is the right or wrong way to do it too, because I see one of two extremes usually. SDR, BDR hands it off to the AE and they go straight to demo. And the SDR just sits on the call or they don't participate like at all. They don't even show up to the call or you know, the SDR BDR will do, you know, some sort of like 15 to 20 minute kind of qualification call where they just pepper like the prospect with a bunch of like, you know, interview style questions <laughs> that I think serves as a detractor and doesn't get the person excited for a demo. And then they get set up for a demo with AE who then pesters them with the same exact questions because the handoff wasn't that great. Yep. What should this process look like? And depending on like the structure and things like that. So you're right, it does depend. Uh, there's a lot of different factors. Some of it's team size, some of it's the market, some of it's the product, the complexity of the product. If you have a really complex product, you might need multiple calls. Depending on how you're set up, depending on your market, there's a lot of different factors. One of the ways to do it is just to have it all together. You have the discovery and the demo together, meaning the SDR finds the opportunity, books the meeting, the AE holds the discovery and demo all together. For many products, you can do this and do it well. Where you run into challenges with that is if you're getting a lot, a lot of low quality opportunities. You've booked this hour for your discovery and demo, and a lot of them you find out they're not very good. By the way, if you booked an hour and if you get into it and after five minutes of discovery, you realize they're not a fit, do not go through the rest of the demo. Too many times I ask sales reps, why did you do that demo if they weren't a fit? I don't know. We had it booked and I just wanted to show them. What? Don't, no, 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 don't show them if, if it's not a fit. The point of discovery is to figure out if they're a fit. So if you find out at any point, whether it's in discovery or later, that they are not a fit, end the call. Then you can do it nice and say, you know what, I realize I don't think we're going to be able to serve your needs. I don't think we're going to be able to take care of you the way you need. I don't think this is a fit. I don't want to waste your time. Let's just end the call here. Great. In fact, by doing that, you might actually get some prospects trusting you and believing you more, meaning they're going to send referrals. I had a client, first time he did this, he got two referrals from the prospect. They loved that he was so honest. They went and told other people that were fits and he got two referrals and two closed deals from that. So you can do it all together. Just make sure that you're getting good quality opportunities into those demos. If you do it all together, do not have your SDRs sit on that call because the AE should run the call and the SDRs will just sit there and it's going to waste their time. You want your SDRs out there finding opportunities, generating meetings. So don't just have them sit there doing nothing. The only time you would is if you have an SDR that you want to get to an AE, you want to promote them, then they can learn by seeing how that process works. Outside of that, have the SDRs focused on prospecting. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to split it up and you have the discovery call and then you have the demo. When you have the discovery call first, again, you can have it by the AE, but I actually prefer it done by the SDR. I think the SDRs, they can manage that process. They can do it really well and they can learn a lot about their market and about the prospecting avenues that they're facing. I know you preach this yourself, Jason, but they can actually become much better at what they do by holding those discovery calls. Now it's really important to make sure that those discovery calls are structured in a way that they're not just kind of working their way through a, a checklist, but they actually hold an, a call, getting the prospect emotional, getting them really excited for the product, getting them really feeling the pain about their current situation and making sure they're conducting the call correctly 
before they hand it off to an account executive who can do the demo. And like you said, it is critical that they have proper communication so that when they hand off, the AE knows exactly what's happening with that prospect situation. They know how the call went, they know what they're looking for, they know their situation so that they can associate the product to their needs. And again, not just go through the script. So to answer your call, you can have it different ways. There's no perfect right way. It really depends on a lot of factors. Just make sure that whichever way you have it, you have the right structure and process in place so the team knows how to handle it. Yeah, and how do you suggest, uh, like in terms of structuring the actual discovery call, what are the nuts and bolts of that? So one of the biggest misses that I see within discovery is people don't get your prospects feeling enough pain. Yeah. Okay. Because you really need to find out where are they now? What is their current situation and where are they trying to get? Now, there's an old adage in sales called stretch the gap. Stretch the gap means let's pretend that your prospect is on a cliff. They see their goal as the other side of the cliff across the ravine. Now, they might feel like if I run back there and then run really fast, I can jump across the ravine and get to the other side, get to my goal. So what you try to do in sales is stretch the gap and make them realize, whoa, that's really far. You sure you you think you can double in size in six months? Are you sure you can do this? Whatever it is, you need to stretch the gap to make them realize you're not going to be able to get there. That's a good way to think of it and a good process. However, I don't like stretch the gap because it focuses on goals. Whereas we want to worry about pain. Pain actually is a bigger motivator. Loss aversion is much more powerful. In fact, twice as powerful as something that people are trying to gain. So if you can play off of the loss aversion and something that you want to make sure your prospects don't want to lose, as opposed to something they're reaching for to gain, you're going to do much better in sales. And so too many software salespeople, SDRs, don't drive on the pain hard enough. That's the biggest thing we see. There's actually three steps to pain. So when you're going after pain, you're trying to find it. Firstly, and I liken this to, I call it my knife analogy. Okay. If the prospect has pain, they've got a knife in their gut. Now, firstly, you need to identify it. And sometimes you can identify that they have a knife in their gut before they do. Meaning, You, through your questions, having excellent questions, diving into the questions, really understanding your industry and understanding the situation that a lot of people in the industry could be in, and then trying to figure out all of that and what they are doing through the questions, you can realize that they have a knife before they ever do. They may have come to you for one thing, but through questioning, you can find out that they actually have a problem over here as well. When you can do that, you've identified it, but they may not know. So number two... Once you know, you need to make sure they identify the pain. Good sales reps can get to this level. Average sales reps identify the pain themselves and go in and start talking about their program. Good sales reps realize I need to make sure they identify that pain. And that's where you can say, okay, by the way, you have a knife in your gut. Oh, oh yeah. So I do. Wow. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, that kind of hurts. The problem is you might identify the pain or that there's a pain. They might then notice it. However, they've been living with it for so long that they might realize or think, that's fine, I can deal with it. We've been working with it this long. You know, 
let's say that your program is going to save 12 hours a week. Well, that's fine. We have Mary, she does this anyway. So it doesn't really matter that we're needing to save that time because we're already been doing it. Mary's fine. She's good. So they might not realize how bad the pain is. Okay. They're just living with it. They're dealing with it. That's a problem. So good sales reps, they're not doing well enough by just making sure that they identify the pain because they might not care. The third step is you need to make sure they feel the pain. So what do you do if you come along somebody and you see they have a knife in their gut? Well, a normal sane person is going to say, oh man, let me help you out and pull the knife out. There, I'm your hero now. And the act of pulling the knife out in this analogy is you go and show the system and show the parts of the system that are going to help solve their problem. But the problem is you didn't get them feeling the pain enough. They're not emotional enough. And so what should a sales rep do? Even though a sane person should pull the knife out, a sales rep who's an excellent sales rep knows there's a third step to pain. And the third step is you twist the knife. Instead of pulling the knife out, you're not saying you're sadistic, you twist the knife. That's when they feel the pain. And that's when they realize, whoa, that's horrible. I need help now. I've got to have a solution ASAP. What do you have? Give me something. Okay. Now I've had people come to me and say, oh, this gives sales reps a bad reputation. You're telling them to, you know, twist knives in pain. No, that's not what we're advocating here. Do not sell to somebody who doesn't need it. But sometimes people who need it don't realize they need it. I equate this to an alcoholic. Okay. I know it's a serious situation, but with an alcoholic, sometimes they're bad. They're bad. They're bad. And you tell them you need help. No, I don't. I can take care of it. I'm fine. I can manage it. Right. They're bad. They're bad. Oftentimes alcoholics don't realize how much they need help until it gets real bad until they fully understand their pain. They fully understand how bad the situation is. That's what it is in sales. You need them to fully understand how bad their situation is. So instead of, oh, you have a pain? Oh yeah, so I do. Great, I'll pull it out. Let's go look at the system. No, don't do it yet. It's tempting, I know. Don't do it, twist the knife. Instead of pulling it out, oh, so Mary is spending all that time? Well, how much are you paying Mary? And what else could Mary be doing instead of doing all this data entry? I'm sure you have other projects. What will those other projects lead? Would you get more revenue? How much revenue are you missing out on by not solving this problem more easily? That's an excellent sales rep. And from my studies, it's only 3% of the people within software sales are doing this. That's where you're able to get the prospect absolutely emotional about their problem. They realize, holy cow, you're right. I had no idea how bad it was. Thanks for diving into this. To give you an idea in my own world, I was talking with people who were looking to join my software program because I have a program for software founders where founders can come in and learn how to close deals really quickly and easily. Well, I was talking with one, this was just the other day, and they had a close rate that was about 40%. They were closing two or three deals a week and they were only generating about 20 leads. I said, well, where do you want to be? Well, we want to be generating about 50 leads, okay? We want to be closing about 50%. Well, when we looked at it and we looked at how much they're making per deal, it came to be that because of this gap of where they are and where they want to be, they're losing $170,000 a month. From where they are now and where they feel like they need to be, they're $170,000 a month shy. It made my sale very easy <laughs> because my rates are much lower than that. So when they realized how bad it was and that I could show them how to get there, cost didn't matter. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get 
the prospect to realize how bad the situation is so that they say, I need something right now. Think of somebody who's in a desert. They're crawling along. They're tired. They're so dry. They're dehydrated. They're out of water. If they come along a water bottle that's been opened and partially drank, they're not going to be like, wait, 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 hold on. I don't want to get COVID. I don't want to get this. I don't want to be sick. Right? They don't care. They're drinking that water. They don't care what the product is. This is Avion. I just want to make sure it's Avion. Is it? They don't care. They're going to drink the water. Same thing. You need to get your prospects dry, dehydrated, feeling like they need the solution. And then when you show the demo and explain, look at this, you asked about this, here it is. They're not going to care how amazing the button is or what it's going to take. They're going to want to close the deal. That's how it works. And by doing good discovery, you almost make the demo like a less relevant part of the uh, sales process because it's almost like the fine print of like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, you said you had, you know, problems A, B, and C. Like, here's what that looks like to solve them through this platform. Or here's what your team can be using. Like, that's, it's almost like an afterthought, you know, if you've really settled on the right thing. Mm-hmm. So you said this, like, this emotional part, really engaging them emotionally. Do you engage them emotionally and sort of logically at the same time? Because you kind of hear that in sales, right? You know, people buy based on emotion and justify with logic. Does the emotion come from logically looking at the numbers? For example, like if I'm selling to a VP of sales, my prospecting training, I get it's not a demo necessarily. I do kind of demo like the stuff that it includes. But is it, hey, your reps are on average hitting 90% of quota. So what's that 10% gap look like? Oh, well, how many meetings a month is that? How much revenue is that? And then it's like, it's really just pressing, pressing, pressing until you get like that number. And is it about, does the emotion come from the loss aversion associated with missing that number or missing out on that thing? Is that, am I sort of thinking about this correctly? Yeah, you're exactly right. People buy with emotion and justify with logic. When you can actually tie both of those together, they can kind of intertwine. Like you said, if you're able to identify that gap, they're going to be really emotional. They should be really upset that they're not getting those numbers. They're not getting that revenue. And you should kind of get it in their head that you're missing out on these things because you don't have this revenue. With this revenue, you could add this other product. You can hire this other team, but you don't have it. And that should get them upset. But then when you show them, hey, our solution costs this much, our service costs this much, and you've already told me that you're losing this much, that's the logic. It's like the only logical decision is to get this product, get this solution, get this service. And that's where the logic comes into play. Do you find that selling to executives, you know, VPC levels, that they're a little bit more logical in thinking in terms of like the numbers and the revenue associated with it versus selling to someone that's maybe, you know, like a manager or someone that's going to champion maybe like what you're doing, but they're not really thinking about revenue as much you know, in terms of like company-wide revenue, do you find any sort of differences between those two? No, there's actually not a lot of correlation. And you might think like big executives, they're more logical, but you can get big executives to be very emotional. In fact, Jack Welch talked about it, that his executive team, when they were looking to acquire companies, got really emotional, really excited. And they had to actually try and do their best to remove emotion, to analyze it more logically when trying to acquire a company. So they didn't get something that was bad for them. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what level the organization are. I do see that there is some correlation when you talk about the type of executive. For example, a CFO is more likely to be more logical. A C 
CIO or a CTO is more likely to be more logical just because of the nature of the types of people in those roles. But everybody buys with emotion. It's just a matter of how much is their emotion logic spectrum swung, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. How hard do you press someone on the numbers when they might not be able to provide them? So for example, you know, if someone's like, hey, you know, I'd like to get our reps cold calling more is what I hear a lot. You know, like they need to be picking up the phone more. They aren't making enough calls. We aren't getting to enough people. Do I then kind of press them on the numbers that they might not know the answer to? So for example, I'm like, hey, Matt, that sounds like, that sounds pretty frustrating. You know, how many meetings do you think you're missing out on, on a monthly basis by your reps not being able to call as effectively as you think they should? And is is part of it you're getting them to kind of speculate and push and say, well, I don't know. Well, well, hey, if you had to guess, what do you think that just conservatively, what do you think that number is? And then what do you think that amounts to? And are you pushing and pushing and pushing until you get some sort of educated guess, even if they don't know the numbers? Because I find that a lot of executives, they know the numbers, but they don't have all of the numbers handy there for that meeting, you know, as we're doing discovery. And oftentimes they don't even know the numbers. Yeah. So because of what you do, and you're so great at what you do, Jason, and that you're so focused, you know, all the metrics within that particular part of the sales spectrum, but an executive's VP sees a lot of different things and may not know all the things that you know within that spectrum. And so a lot of times I talk to people and they don't know the number. You know what I do? I make them feel bad that they don't know the number. So I want them feeling emotional that, Hey, by the way, these are numbers that they should know. So it's not like I'm being mean by making them feel bad. When I ask somebody, hey, how many leads are you getting? How many demos are you doing? What's your outbound rate? What's your close rate? What's your lead to demo rate? And they're like, I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, these are critical metrics if you want to scale. You're telling me you don't track this? Like, this is literally a conversation. Uh, yeah, no, I get You're right. We should. And then they're in a place of emotion. They're now at a place where they realize, wow, we're missing. We're missing metrics. They could be horrible. I don't even know. I should be doing that. What am I doing? I need somebody to help me because I don't want to try and figure that out. That sounds nasty. Who can help me? You? Oh, okay, great. Why don't you help me? So even that is an opportunity to get them realizing they need help. And that's what it's all about. If you're talking to the right prospects, they're the right quality, they qualify for what you're doing, your goal is to help them. They need to realize that you can help them before you can do that. So the goal is getting them to realize you can help. And just that right there is bad. So you're right. I actually get them feeling emotional that they don't know it. Like these are things you should know. Just so you know, the people who are succeeding, they have these numbers tracked and dialed in. They know every day exactly where they are with each of these. And they know what they're shooting for and how they're going to get there. And they've got the strategy put in place. If you're not there, we need to get to work ASAP. Yeah. And right there, that's enough. They're like, okay, yeah, you're right. (laughs) We got to figure this out. Yeah. Well, that's good for me, actually. My big takeaway from that is I need to push my prospects harder. The ones that, because when I talk to a VP sometimes, I'm like, well, you don't even know what the top of funnel meeting target should be on a monthly basis, because that's the number one predictor of revenue right there. Like, it's the number one thing. You should loosely know what that number is, you know? Absolutely. So what about, how does outbound, if at all, change, or discovery change for outbound versus inbound leads that come in? I think it does change. I mean, on outbound, you're still trying to get that meeting. Inbound, it's a lot easier to get the meeting. So outbound, the discovery is more of kind of an interplay into booking the meeting. 
like, hey, are you feeling this challenge? Are you doing this? You're going to be a lot better at outbound than me, by the way, Jason. So <laughs> I'm sure you could give all the best advice for that outbound prospecting. But I think it is slightly different because I think inbound, you work under the assumption that they are looking for the meeting, that they're trying to get a meeting booked. And I think too many times we assume that they're going to book. In fact, the average for a lead to demo ratio, meaning a lead that comes inbound, that we get a demo from is about 45 to 50%, the average. Meaning we might think, oh, an inbound lead, we're gonna get a great demo. No, only about half of them on average. Now, the best companies get to 80 or 90% lead to demo rate, but average companies 45 to 50. So even so, we should understand that that's what they want. They want to see it, they want a demo because they came inbound. However, we still want to go through a proper discovery. We still want to make sure that they're going to be a fit. And we want to kind of get them to qualify for us. Yeah. And so I think that's a little change on inbound of the sense of get them realizing that we're not going to accept everybody that, Hey, we're looking for the right partners. Not, we're just trying to sell a bunch of customers. We're looking for the right partners and get them to try and qualify for you. And that's where you can kind of turn the tables a little bit. And I learned this a lot in my franchise sales because in franchise sales, it absolutely is them trying to convince you to let them pay you thousands of dollars. Yeah. If you can do that even a little bit, then they're going to fight for that deal to close. And that's a good thing. Yeah. I definitely see the difference in outbound and inbound where it's, there's companies when they first start doing outbound, their AEs are just like completely lost because they're used to selling to people that want to be in that sales meeting. Like they came mm -hmm. to you, you know, for, versus someone that maybe you're the SDR objection handled really hard to get to show up to the meeting and they're, and they're showing up and it's like, they still need to be sold. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like this, the discovery is so much more important on the front end with outbound because you got to get the person excited because they're most of the time not going to know that they have a problem, you know, or any sort of aspiration to meet with you. Yep. Yeah. I was just curious in your thoughts on that. I love what you said around loss aversion too. And it's like the opportunity is something they're missing out on. So you're losing out on $150,000 a month right now by not being able to set 5% more of the meetings that you, uh, you know, whatever. I love that loss aversion piece. Is there anything, I know you have 10 points, but is there a couple maybe you can share, a couple big ones for discovery, uh, things that people should be doing? Yeah, so one of the things that people miss a lot is goals. And not just asking about goals, but you need to get specific goals, okay? So if you say, hey, so what are your goals? Yeah, we're looking to grow. Okay, great, not good enough. Wait, wait, how much are you looking to grow? By what? By when? What is, tell me, I need this exact number. Well, we need to grow by 34% by the end of the year. There, now that's a goal, okay? Or we need to sell $100,000 worth of business by July. Okay, great, there's a goal. When you can get exact, it makes it so much easier to handle the rest of the conversation and it's much easier in follow-ups. Listen to this follow-up that goes much better. Hey, Steve. Hey, I know you were looking to get $100,000 by July. What steps have you taken so far to make that happen? And should we get started so we can start attacking that goal? So much more powerful than, hey, are you still looking to, to sign up with us? No, I don't really care about you. I care about getting where I need to go. Like you're just one medium that could happen. Yeah. Right? It's a huge difference. So get exact on the goals, not just, oh yeah, we're looking to grow. 
not good enough. Yeah. And like really pressing, I know this is a really straightforward question, but just asking, well, why is that important? Why is that important to you, Matt? You know, people start revealing all kinds of like personal things and attachments they have around this goal. And it's like, you never know. I mean, a lot of it's just like personal pride. You know, some people might be really honest with you and say, I might not be here if I don't hit that goal, <laughs> you know, yep. if they're in sales. So anything else mm-hmm. missed in discovery? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say on that, why is that important is good. But I actually like the opposite, go the other way and say, what happens if you don't get that? Uh, and that's, again, hitting to that loss emotion. And like you said, oh, damn, I mean, I might not be here or yeah, we won't be able to fund the company. I won't make payroll, whatever it is. Oh, so you've got to make that happen, right? So that now you can start to realize how important it is for them. Yeah, it's really interesting too, because when you ask these questions, a lot of times I find that the person hasn't really actually played the scenarios out in their head. Absolutely. So they're doing it live right in front of you and they're like, well, God, if I don't hit that number, we might have to lay people off or people might start quitting if they, like if the attrition might be really bad, if the morale is really low and people aren't able to hit their quota and they're like, why might I have, yeah, they just start playing all this stuff in their head, which is really interesting to be able to see that and experience that firsthand. Very true. And what happens from there is they realize this discussion was valuable because it got them thinking about what they need to think about. And when they think the discussion is valuable, they see you as the facilitator, as an advisor, as a consultant, which is exactly where you need to be. So I guess one last question around this is, am I right in assuming that, hey, if I ask a question that like you don't know the answer to, it getting you to stop and think about it, if it's something you should know, the that's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. If the person's like, oh, I don't really know, and it's like, well, let's kind of stop here. So wh- why don't you know this number? Yeah, yeah. It's okay for them to be a little uncomfortable. Yeah. That's absolutely okay because they should start to be uncomfortable about their situation, meaning they need to fix it. They don't want to feel that uncomfort. They need to get to a place where they feel comfort and your solution can be that answer. Yeah, love it. One last question around this educate piece we didn't really get to go into is is there any education happening during the actual discovery process or is that something that's like more demo? There is. Educate's the one phase. And actually, this is something that we line out. We have a program for software founders. We line out exactly what to do at every step, how to do it, exactly what words to say, how to play it, how to deliver it. Makes it really easy for people to level up their demos. But educate something that actually the different pieces can be scattered all throughout the entire demo. There's definitely a phase kind of smushed in between discovery and the demo where you can really deliver a ton of value and get people thinking a different way. But a lot of the different pieces are kind of all over. And that's something to just kind of be aware of is that you should be constantly educating. By the way, you should also be constantly discovering. If at any point during the entire process, prospecting, discovery, demo, even after the demo, if they're looking to close, if you at any point realize they're gonna be a bad customer, bye. Same with education. You should be educating all along the entire path. Yeah. I find that even during the prospecting process too, if you can point certain things out to people or educate them, that's a really good you know, reason for them to take a meeting you know, as well. Huge, huge. Cool, Matt, this is awesome, dude. Action-packed today, man. Good. Uh, I learned a lot. My biggest takeaway was this, uh, getting them to feel the pain and like really like digging in, especially if, like if it's uncomfortable, which I encounter this a lot when I do discoveries, like the person doesn't know the answer to the questions. And then if, if there's kind of this awkward moment, you know, and I really just need to embrace that and actually push 
more and be like, hey, I get that you don't know this, but the fact that you don't know it is, it, that's a bit of a red flag that you don't know how many meetings your team should be getting on a monthly basis, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was my big takeaway. Where can people go to connect with you, man? You're pumping out all kinds of good stuff on LinkedIn. You got a podcast. I know you got some programs. Where can people go to connect with you and uh, learn more from you, man? Yeah, sure. You can find me all over. My website is mattwallach.com, M-A-T-T-W-O-L-A-C-H. You can also find me on YouTube. I'm putting out tips and tricks all the time, every week. Uh, you mentioned my podcast, that's Sastry in the Making. You were a guest on there, so go see Jason's awesome episode on Sastry in the Making. Great stuff he delivered. And really, LinkedIn, if you want to follow me on there as well, I'm always putting out great tips for you, too. That was a really fun conversation with Matt. I just love this process. I think the E part is like this educate piece. Like be thinking about how you can educate the prospect throughout the process. So what are some things that you could share with them even through the prospecting, you know, end of the equation before you get to discovery. And if you can think about where in the sales process you educate, you can do a light version of that to get someone excited to take the call. I think that's the biggest takeaway for me here. And something I preach a lot is this teach, don't take concept. So instead of thinking about how can I take 30 minutes of their time to sell them, how can I teach them something? How can I give them something in place of their time? So regardless of if they decide to take next steps with you, they're still going to get something out of that call. And that's really a big key in landing meetings with executives. So thanks for tuning in. One thing before you take off that I'd really uh, love for you to do is if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe. And if you could share it with one other person that you think would find some value in it, I'd really appreciate it. Helps us grow the show, helps us continue getting on great guests like Matt. So I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.